Welcome to AnthroTalking, a podcast series from Stockholm University's Anthropology Department. Anthropology's emergence at the intersection between colonial modernity and non-modern cultural traditions has always put it face to face with moral questions unique to its field of study. The various ways of negotiating the relation between cultural and moral relativism is perhaps one of the most important. But there are many others, such as the morality of modernization and capitalist development, the morality of racial classification and the morality of different forms of patriarchal domination. All are as old as the discipline itself, and have given rise to a particularly anthropological mode of confronting moral questions. While this engagement with morality began timidly, it has continuously grown to become far more explicit today. It can even be said that since the turn of the century, it is one of the growth areas of anthropological research and reflection. Today, anthropologists' moral horizons are continuously expanding. This expansion is related to the part of the extension of the space of anthropological research and the multiplicity of moral issues that has arisen within them. These have not only grown geographically to include an entirety of the globe, but have also come to include non-spatially localized phenomena. Topics such as the intensification and the opposition to neoliberal globalization, the spread of social media, the internet and online social relations, re-emergence of national and international neocolonial forms of interventionism, the intersection of religion, anti-colonialism and terrorism, the continuing rise of forced and non-forced migration, and the ecological crisis all have widened the scope of anthropological research while highlighting new moral questions and dilemmas. Text written by the Australian Anthropological Society Hello, my name is Friedrich Niemann, and thank you for listening to another episode of AnthroTalking. Last year, between the 1st and 4th of December 2015, the Australian Anthropological Society's annual conference took place at the University of Melbourne. With nearly 50 panels and over 400 participants, it was a vivid event where lots of knowledge and new insights within anthropology were shared among those who took part. The theme was, as already hinted, Moral Horizons, and invited ethnographic research and anthropological theorizations to contribute, critically or otherwise, to widen and multiply these horizons. One anthropologist who took part was Dr. Asunta Hunter, who together with one of her former supervisors, Professor Martha McIntyre, convened the panel Moral Dimensions of Health, Illness and Healing in a Globalized Modernity. The panel consisted of ten papers, one of which was Asunta Hunter's own, named Moral Dimensions of Making Modern Thai Traditional Medicine Practitioners. Asunta Hunter has a PhD in Medical Anthropology from the University of Melbourne. She submitted her doctoral thesis in September 2013 to the Centre of Health and Society, University of Melbourne. Her thesis, which is named Creating Postmodern Practitioners, State Practice and Thai Traditional Medicine, examines how the community of Thai traditional medicine practitioners have adapted to the changes associated with the modernization and professionalization of Thai traditional medicine. Today, she works as a project officer within the Employment and Disability Project at the Unit of Gender and Women's Health, University of Melbourne. However, before Asunta Hunter decided to pursue a PhD, she had worked nearly 30 years as a herbalist and naturopath, that is, a health practitioner who applies natural therapies. Having taught herbal medicine for several years, she reached a point in her life when she, as she puts it herself, wanted to reflect on practice. In this episode of Anthro Talking, I will speak to Asunta Hunter about her road from being a herbalist and naturopath into becoming an anthropologist. We will also talk about her research interests and how it was to conduct fieldwork in Thailand. So maybe what I'll start with is just kind of how I came to anthropology. Yeah. Um, and talk a little bit about my background career as a herbalist and, and then talk a bit about my fieldwork and my mm -hmm. doctoral project, something yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose my academic trajectory was studying sociology as an undergraduate and I was very interested in the sociology of health and medicine and at that time I was writing quite a lot about um, the whole movement, sort of self-help movement and particularly sort of de, what was called then, deprofessionalising medicine. So 
in particular the women's health movement was very strong on expert model of medicine and this was the late 1970s so uh, a lot of it focused around the sort of critique that women's health made about doctors as authoritarian and fairly undiscursive in their relationships with patients and not very helpful in terms of talking about anything other than the drug that they were going to give. That was kind of the background of that. And, you know, so my my thinking at that time was around how women's health in particular had managed to break out of this very expert mould of medicine. And having finished that, I was still fairly unsettled and only in my mid-twenties. And I thought, mm, I'm not sure I just want to write about this. I think I actually want to work in this kind of way of practice. And so I went off and studied what in Australia is called naturopathy, which is an amalgamation really under the one umbrella of a number of disciplines, herbal medicine, homeopathy and nutrition. I'm not sure what it would be called in, in Sweden. In Germany, we would be known as Heilpraktikus, basically sort of natural therapies treatment. And here you study for four years and and to what is now a degree, then it wasn't a degree, but and you know I became a naturopath and for a very long time I practiced I would see patients and I taught herbal medicine so that was sort of if you like that was a very practical experience of different kinds of medicine sort of a, um, when you've been a different kind of practitioner in your own culture you realize there are many different forms of medicine and lots and lots of different ways of approaching the task of healing. And, you know, working as, as a naturopath and herbalist for many years, I, you know, I realised that, um, well, in the immortal words of my mother, who's Glaswegian, there are more than one ways to kill a cat. <laughs> so it's, you know, that there are lots of ways of approaching uh, treatment. So I did that for about somewhere between 25 and 30 years. And then I was at a point in my life where I wanted really to reflect on practice and wanted to be able to think about what I had done as a practitioner. And that actually led me to thinking about one of the things that I'd been most involved in was, was actually the process of education. And, and that was where, you know, after 25 years, I could certainly see there was a lot of changes in how herbalists and naturopaths were educated and a lot of shift in where naturopathy was. You know, it had gone from being very much fringe medicine to being quite mainstream. And um, I thought, well, that's interesting. All of that's kind of happened in this country. And at the same time, I'd had a bit of acquaintance with Thailand. I'd been there three or four times as a, just as a tourist. And I started thinking about how it might be in Thailand. And thus I conceived of my plan to do a PhD and to look at how herbal medicine practice and traditional medicine had changed there. And in particular how the education of traditional medicine practitioners had changed. So I'm not quite sure how it was that I really came to anthropology through that because my you know, my undergraduate degree was sociology, although many of the people that I studied then would now be considered to be anthropologists. You know, there's that kind of borderline area between yeah. sociology and, yeah. and anthropology. Not even Dokan could distinguish that. That's right. <laughs> yeah, he tried. <laughs> he tried very yeah. hard. Yeah. Um, I think my project probably dictated that it, it was actually medical anthropology that took a central role and you know I plunged bravely in not ever having studied anthropology um, in a formal sense you know so in a disciplinary sense but I had a good sense of you know my own research project and you know supervisors who just said read 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 <laughs> you know and threw some very good references in my direction as well and who presumed that i would be capable enough to do ethnographic fieldwork when i did get to thailand i started thinking about doing a phd probably in 2006 but i didn't actually enroll till the beginning of 2008 
and then I went off to do my field work in 2009 and 2010. So, you know, it was quite an elongated process, during which I, you know, had, of course, started to read in the area of anthropology. So it's, um, for me, it's like another perspective, you know, another way of thinking about where traditional medicine fits into the world, because really, I suppose my thesis was was not just about Thai traditional medicine, but a bit more broadly about traditional medicine and how it changes um, in, right. in relation to modernity. But you were already familiar with, you know, sociological theory, but had you studied any kind of ethnographic theory or ethnographic uh, I, methodology? Look, I did. I certainly did. In, my, in Australia, we do a first year in which you have to, the hurdle that you have to cross is confirmation. So by the end, roughly, of your first 12 months of enrolment, you're supposed to have done a lot of disciplinary reading, a lot of background reading, you know, worked up a good sort of literature review for your area. Um, and certainly in that first year, yes, I actually did. We in, in Australia, we actually do normally one or two pieces of coursework usually in that first year as well. It's not mandatory, but it's it, certainly in the School of Population Health at Melbourne University, it was strongly recommended. So, and one of the courses I did was a medical anthropology course, and that was an introduction to ethnography and to the idea of ethnography. I think I've probably still got the time-honoured tradition of just go there and do it as well. You know, that, that sense of... The field comes to you. Yes, the field will come to you. Mm. You know basically what to do. Just make sure you write notes and write a lot. It's like, okay, I can do that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, you know, which I think is, in some ways is good. You know, like I don't, I certainly hadn't entered into all the critiques of ethnography that are, you know, current in, in anthropology. I didn't really have that kind of intellectual perspective on ethnography when I went. But I certainly did have a good observer's hat on. And I knew, you know, I had that a good sense of making sure that I wrote up anything that I did and keeping a reflective journal. And I suppose in some ways I felt like I was observing a community that, you know, I knew the kind of structures of a community as it existed in Australia. Professional associations, individual herbalists, teaching institutions, you know, people who regulated them, all of that. So I knew kind of what I was looking for in that sense. So that that helped. But then after that, I just blundered along, really, yeah. as everyone does. So medical anthropology was a, a huge influence to you. Are, are there any yeah. certain scholars in mind? Uh, in my most immediate field, so the anthropology of, of Thailand, certainly one of my supervisors was a great influence in that she... She had worked almost exclusively in Thailand, Dr. Andrea Whitaker, and she she has done almost exclusively qualitative research, and she has a, a quite a, a strong socio-historical perspective on the kinds of things that she has looked at. Her particular interest now is reproductive tourism, and she's worked quite a lot in hospital settings in Thailand looking at how medical tourism has developed there as a country. So she's, I mean, she's, as a supervisor, she's clearly been a big influence on me. But also, I think, reading some of the kinds of very modern ethnographies, like Anat Singh's Frictions, which describes a big picture kind of ethnography, I found that very a very compelling way of writing. And also it kind of gives the perspective, gives that sort of, again, that big picture, socio-historical perspective, which I found really interesting, you know, like I think mm. it's very important to link your anthropology to the to the sort of the social and historical context of the country that you're in. I don't think you can do it any other way, really. No. <laughs> <laughs> and she had, a, you know, she has a very good grip on how to do that. And it's interesting in, in 
many of the anthropologists who've worked in Thailand, there's been a variety, you know, sort of a much more classical anthropological ethnographic work done in Thailand in the 60s and 70s. And then a kind of a lull when Americans in particular stopped going to Thailand for, for whatever reason. And then a bit more in the 90s, some real ethnographic interest there. And Rosalind Morris in particular has written a very good ethnography of northern Thailand whose name I'm going to forget. It may come back to me. She writes beautifully for a start. I mean, I suppose that's one of the things that we all hope for when we study anthropology, that magically we will be turned into writers or, you know, even not non-magically, just by a process of <laughs> accretion and reading other people's and learning how to do it in practice. Mm. But mm. Um, I can't claim any of that kind of magic has really rubbed up on me yet. So, and in the area, um, you know, in terms of other anthropologists who've been of interest to me, uh, some of the medical anthropology that has been written around traditional healing I find really interesting. A very interesting book was published, I think, in 2009 by Mei Zahn around what she called the worlding of traditional medicine. She writes a whole book around the sort of the circulation of of knowledge and people and and education in Chinese medicine between America and and China, and how things the the kinds of influences that have been present on Chinese medicine, you know that's a very interesting way again a multi-sided ethnography that has strong conceptual basis but actually shifts through many different sites and and talks about a, a range of people, which I find a, a, an interesting way to illustrate, particularly the sort of the transnational nature of, of a lot of traditional medicine practices as they kind of shift from what might have been their country base at one time to how they're practised now. What is it about Thailand that is so interesting? Mm -mm, that's a good question. Um, I'm hard-pressed to say in some ways because, you know, prior to 15 years ago I hadn't had any contact with Thailand at all. You know, on one level it's, it's Southeast Asia, it's very much a regional country. It's, you know, it's a country that I had been to and, I you know, I felt a certain kind of affinity for. But on a more specific level, when it came to thinking about traditional medicine, the thing that probably prompted me to work in Thailand was the fact that traditional medicine was so visible in the culture. You know, so there were traditional medicines available everywhere from the supermarket to the pharmacy to the, the roadside markets and massage is a very you know it's a very strong part of traditional medicine in thailand and and massage was clearly very visible not just to tourists but in in a lot of different facets of, of thai life so that piqued my interest and especially when people would say things like oh no traditional medicine is dying and i'd be going hmm, really but it's everywhere, you know, <laughs> and everybody seems to know a traditional healer and everybody seems to use traditional remedies. So it's dying, is it? Oh, okay. That's interesting. And, um, you know, there's a certain kind of, you know, that set up a paradox for me, that set up a, a, a curiosity, something that I wanted to pursue. So that's, I could have chosen, you know, in some ways I chose well, as one of my supervisors said. She worked mostly in New Guinea, at least you chose a country that has a cuisine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I can, I can only smile and say yes. It was a very, you know, I certainly didn't do the traditional version of, of field work where you encounter great hardship in terms of food or lodgings. I ate well every day in Thailand and, and enjoyed it a great deal. But other aspects of Thailand are really quite difficult. Speaking Thai, for example, that's difficult. I did two years of classes before I went, and I'm not a good language student, I know now, or I might be all right with European languages, but I wasn't 
particularly good with Thai, it's a tonal language, so it's ha may mean five different things depending on how you say it. Or ma, more particularly, that's the classic example. Ma, 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 all mean something different. So you have to train your ear as well as your mouth. <laughs> you know, I, I've got very basic Thai and really all of my fieldwork interviews, all the, all the in-depth interviews I did through an interpreter, through a couple of different interpreters actually. And, you know, they've proved to be very good sort of mediators for me, very people who taught me a lot about the culture. But, yeah, other aspects of Thailand are quite, quite hard in some ways for an anthropologist, you know. The, Thailand's a very polite society. It's also a society where a lot of things don't get said, quite literally, don't get said. I, I used to read a couple of newspapers a day English language newspapers and, and I found myself very frustrated with the degree to which things were not said. And also it took me a long time to realise in some situations how polite Thai people were being. They would never say outright that they didn't like something. They would. It is rare to find a Thai person who will be immediately and openly critical. They're much more likely to dwell on the the positive aspects of the situation or the or the government spin that they would like to have put on the situation or the what they can do rather than what they can't do so that actually makes it quite hard to find your way sort of uh, reading between the lines very often as i was saying in my talk the other day it took me a really long time to understand that actually traditional healers folk healers were illegal you know and i'm sure i asked that question directly <laughs> to half a dozen people, if not more. And it's like, oh no, they can practice. Yes. Ah, okay. And do they charge? Oh no, no, people just give a donation to respect the healer's teacher. Ah, oh, okay. And sometimes is there a problem? <laughs> so, you know, you always have to read between the lines. You always have to read between the lines. And, you know, and then at the other end of that, you put together, you know, what half a dozen different people have said, and bearing in mind whether they were traditional healers or bureaucrats or university people. And you know, okay. And, you know, and then finally somebody, in English we say, lets the cat out of the bag, you know, sort of the truth pops out. And... You go, ah, okay, oh, they're illegal. <laughs> oh, they're not supposed to, pray. oh, I see. <laughs> you know, and then after that, you sort of spend your time sort of confirming what that actually might mean. So, yes, there are aspects of being an anthropologist in Thailand that can be quite hard. On the upside, things like taking photographs, everybody loves to have their photograph taken. So very easy to capture in image form the kinds of things you might want to capture as an anthropologist because people, I think actually people probably take it as a mark of respect that you want to remember the day and remember the occasion and remember them as people. So you you can end up with a good fund of images. There's not too many taboos about taking pictures in Thailand. So they're not really afraid of exposure? Not in that direct very direct and immediate sense. Maybe in other ways they might actually be a little concerned about exposure. It's a very proper society. It's a very hierarchical society. There were a lot of things I didn't realise about how formal a society it was and also really about what aspects of appearance were important. And I probably dressed much too casually I was, I'm sure I was not um, indiscreet in the sense of being too revealing in my clothing and, you know, there are certain, making sure that you're modestly dressed is important, but actually demonstrating your position by wearing quite formal clothes is, is usual in Thailand and I'm, I tend, an informal person, I tend not to do that. And I think probably in some situations that wasn't to my advantage. And the other thing is, as a woman in Thailand, you're supposed to wear dresses or skirts. And I found that extremely hard to take seriously until actually 
one day I was going off for an interview with somebody in Chiang Mai University Pharmacy Department and we thought we'd go into the pharmacy library and which was nice and quiet and do our interview there and lo and behold when we got to the entrance to the library a conversation went on in Thai and we had to find somewhere else to do the interview and I said to my interpreter what was that about and she said uh, uh, you have to wear a skirt to go into the library and I said what <laughs> I really I really could not believe it and I, she wasn't wearing a skirt either I have to say the person we were interviewing was definitely wearing a skirt and I was so shocked I didn't talk about it more at the, t the time but afterwards I was talking with my interpreter Tom and she's fairly strong feminist I said I cannot believe that you are not allowed to go in there wearing a pair of pants I cannot believe that people have not protested and complained about this she looked a little embarrassed but I found that truly shocking so that's 2009 but those kinds of dress rules still hold sway and actually in retrospect I realized I probably should have worn skirts more often and that I was probably taken for a gay female because I did not wear a skirt on all occasions and I, again I found that really quite shocking you know that the dress code is that rigid so things like that I just you, you find your way through and, and the ties are very forgiving on another level you know they do see you as foreigners and you can get away with a great deal because you're a foreigner certainly didn't try to offend anybody but I'm sure in, in some matters I was probably considered to be not quite right I must say I find that aspect very interesting because from a western hmm. perspective hmm. it would be you know considered very informal to wear a skirt but here it was quite the opposite it was yes in, it, it was informal not to wear a skirt yes and it was you were encouraged to wear a skirt uh, yeah yeah and wearing a skirt mm. was a very gendered thing mm. it was not just a question of formality no no it was, no absolutely. It, it was what women mm. wore and women are very you know it, it's mm. a very the society is still really strongly male dominated and you know traditional Thai ideas about female roles and gender are still really quite archaic's not the word not quite but they're they're struggling to be modern I would say about aspects of gender which is very surprising because in many ways because in fact in a lot of areas of Thailand, particularly regional areas and particularly the north, women have always taken a very strong role in employment and there's quite strong matrilineal residence in certain areas of northeastern Thailand. And it's quite, it's interesting to see the degree to which women are disciplined according to their clothing, their demeanour, how they eat, many, many things. And that's well before you get into sort of personal and intimate relationships so it's it's striking it's very striking and especially from my point of view as a older woman who's not who's a strong feminist not accustomed to seeing how that can be enacted in a different way does this normative gender dominance does this apply to sexuality as well yeah yes normative gender roles in terms of females I'm familiar with and certainly there's very strong gender roles around there being a dominant male-like woman and who's called Tom and a dominant uh, and a you know a more submissive and traditionally feminine woman who's the the D I'm struggling to remember what that's short for doesn't come back to me so yeah yeah gender roles among among gay women are very codified and again you know that's that's something that's still here in Australian society, but it's much less strict or structured in, in, in any specific way. There's much more flexibility. Yeah, that was, you know, that, those kinds of things you kind of recognise along the way and, you know, they, you have to, they, they form part of your picture, part of your anthropological picture. Yeah, yeah. I thought maybe we could turn back to, you were talking about, you know, how anthropologists struggles in mm. Thailand because I just remember a quote 
from mm. your doctoral thesis where you said that being an, both an insider and an outsider allowed you to move between formal and informal sites of traditional medicine learning and practice. Mm. Could you perhaps tell us more about this? Well, it was interesting in some ways with many of my more long-term informants. They were very well acquainted with, you know, my, my history and what I had done in my professional life. And that gave me kind of an entree into how they... It's, I think it softened our relationships in some ways, made them less formal. And there was an assumption on their part that I understood or knew some of the things that they were talking about, you know, so, it, I mean, quite specifically in terms of things like herbal medicines and in terms of, of things like massage, I have quite a good understanding in a Western sense of how those kinds of therapies work. So to have a conversation about them and about how somebody is educated in those areas was not hard and I could do it from the point of view of somebody who had been involved in those kinds of things. There were a couple of folk healers who I got on with extremely well and had great respect for. And even though their style of practice was very different from, you know, Western-style practice, it did help that they knew that I was a herbalist and it did help to have an understanding of the constraints that they worked within that really kind of gave gel to our relationship and yet you know I think as I said in the thesis it couldn't have been more obvious that I was not an insider you know here I was a 50 something white haired white skinned female in Thai society and you know many of the older folk healers most of the older folk healers are male though not all of my informants were male by a long shot and the style of, of traditional practice that they'd been educated in was vastly different from my background but there was you know there was a certain affinity there um, and you know I felt I could draw on that and you know I was careful not to overstate it and also careful not to make too many assumptions about what I knew and what they knew and, and whether there were lines of equivalence about that too and you know I was very obviously an outsider in lots of ways because I was able to be living and studying in Thailand and not practicing, you know, so I assume that people's assumptions about me, even with all my interviews, of course, and this might be rather different from ethnographic practice in Sweden, I'm not sure, but, you know, all of my research project had to go through an ethics committee. One of the particular requirements of, of ethics committees that you always inform your informants that you know you are doing research so particularly you know and specifically with my in-depth interviews I was always telling people about my research and specifying that this was part of a, a doctoral research project and I'm sure that not all of them understood what that was so it's quite a, a specific thing to try and explain. I understand that in a lot of places in Europe ethnographic research doesn't have to go through ethics review committees. Australia is quite unusual in that regard. At least not formal. Not formal ones. Well, yeah, no, ours absolutely had to go through a formal ethics committee. And, you know, I also had to get permissions to do research in Thailand as well. But From the know, government? From the government, yes, from the government. Mm. <laughs> That's right. Which is, you know, it's kind of... A whole other kind of level of permission and you know I, my research was non-sensitive though as I think I've said before I didn't realize how lucky I was in what I had chosen to research because actually had I been interested in plant material or anything that might have been commercial possibilities or patentable possibilities I probably would have been scrutinized a, a lot more carefully and still I know in fact I had a very funny conversation with one of my interpreters at one point. She had a very good understanding of what my project was about. I think probably communicated well to the people we were talking with about what our what my project was about. But she said, I'm embarrassed to say this, but you wouldn't believe how many people have asked me, so 
you know, what, what is she really researching about? You know, what plant is she trying to find out about? You know, which just gives you some idea about the kind of level of concern that people had about Indigenous knowledge and, and about intellectual property rights. And they had good reason to be. You know, there, were, there have been some very striking cases of large companies trying to extract information about traditional medicines and use it without revealing what they were doing. So, you know, there was that had been very much in the last 10 years, that had been very much in the forefront of traditional medicine in Thailand. So I, I was fortunate that I was actually studying the profession and not trying to study pharmacologically or do anything that might even have looked slightly like I might have been impinging on traditional property rights. Yes, I had to laugh <laughs> when my interpreter told me there were so many people who really thought that I was researching something else. No, no. actually the traditional healers I'm interested in, <laughs> not what they're using. Should we move on to discuss your doctoral thesis? Sure. Could you perhaps summarise your most significant findings and arguments? Hmm. You, you probably touched upon a I, lot of it already, I, but... Uh... I have touched upon a lot of it already, mm. but my research was principally in Northern Thailand and principally in Chiang Mai province, mm. and it was an ethnography of traditional medicine practitioners and the changes in, in educational practice that had taken place mm. in the last... 35 to 40 years. So how I went about it, the sort of the nuts and bolts of how I went about it were actually to pursue a couple of different traditional medicine practitioners in some detail and spend, you know, a considerable amount of time with them. And they were both unusual in different regards, but they were also very characteristic in other ways, of course. You know, so one of them was an older male who was a folk healer, but he was a very respected folk healer. And in fact, he was somebody who had managed to obtain a license on the basis of the fact that he was so well regarded, had been in practice for more than 30 years, contributed to government committees, taught in universities, so he was very well educated in a variety of ways, but he had also started his uh, professional life as an apprentice and had kind of moved with the times, if you like, to obtain a, a different style of education as he went along. And, and the other person that I spent a lot of time with was actually a, a licensed massage practitioner who also used quite a lot of herbal medicines. And she was in a similar mould in some ways. She had studied as an apprentice with her grandmother, so had learnt from, in a tradition which was very much show and tell. You know, so her grandmother was illiterate, but she was the village midwife and healer, and, you know, she just followed, my informant just followed her round and learned what plant to use for what. And in later life, you know, so, uh, you know, 15 or 20 years later, she actually went and got a formal training. And she went through all the government processes and became not only a licensed practitioner, but licensed to run a school. So she also was sort of a good example of how, how things had shifted over a, a, an extended period of time. So they were sort of the two people who I spent a lot of time with. But then, you know, my ethnography kind of spread out to a variety of other places where traditional medicine was taught and they ranged from two universities in Chiang Mai province in the far north and oh, actually they were probably in Chiang Rai province and also to a variety of less formal schools and then I talked with people who were still teachers in the apprenticeship mould and essentially you know my thesis was kind of contextualising the way in which traditional medicine education had shifted over the last 40 years, so since 19, since Alma Ata, since the very large conference which started to recommend that traditional medicine should be integrated into the, into the health systems of, uh, of a lot of countries. 
and it was fascinating to kind of talk with a variety of people. So those were sort of my key field sites, but then I would go and talk with academics, policy makers, people who were high up in the Ministry of Public Health. You know, so I did a few trips down to Bangkok to talk, do interviews with senior bureaucrats and and to try and sort out exactly how it was that all of these changes had come about. And the big picture was, well, Thailand in the last sort of 50 years has modernised rapidly and they've got a very strong ideological bent towards being seen as modern and a very strong sort of cultural propensity for adopting things that they like and maybe using them in the way that they prefer. And that includes, you know, the large areas, large sort of aspects of westernisation in many different cultural areas, everything from food and education to medicine. So the big picture in Thailand over the last 50 years was a you know, rapidly, rapidly industrialising economy, a state that really wanted to be seen as modern, and yet a state that was really quite controlling. It's known as a constitutional democracy, but I would hesitate. You know, the democracy is not is not the important bit of that phrase. <laughs> the king is the important bit of the of the, um, of the constitutional democracy, and there's a you know there's a very limited sense of democracy in Thailand. So my thesis really kind of reflect reflects an argument about how actually the the modernization and professionalization of traditional medicine has actually been a, a very much a state endeavor and you know that reflects a very characteristic pattern within Thai society of you know quite strong state control and a fairly strongly elitist pattern of development you know so when it came to medicine you know adopting medicine within Thailand has actually been about adopting you know, very modern medical practices and a, a very medicalised view of of healing, which has set somewhat uncomfortably next to traditional healing, which is still accorded quite a good deal of respect. So my basic argument was that actually there's been a... The Thai government has tried very hard to control and and modernise the practice of traditional medicine, and particularly with a view to the tourist industry and to medical tourism, and has actually, you know, pushed a lot of training of traditional medicine into university, into very formal institutions. There's still a large amount of uh, the practice of traditional medicine which goes on in the hands of people who are not licensed and people who've got a very had a very different educational practice. And interestingly, there's a lot of interplay between the two groups of people. You know, so while they've created a very modern profession, that very modern profession looks backwards to the folk healers with some expectation that there is, you know, there is knowledge and practices there which they actually need to learn as well as what they may have learnt in a very science-based traditional medicine course within a university. So at the, at the moment, there's really a very, very diverse spectrum of traditional medicine practitioners in Thailand. And they, are, they reflect all shades of educational practice as well as, as medical practice as well. So it's quite a, it's a complex situation and one which is very much influenced by Thailand's political economy and particularly the political economy of tourism. You applied Foucault's notion of governmentality in your thesis. I did. In what way was that concept more useful than others and how does a Foucauldian theory work in a South Asian context? I think the notion of governmentality was interesting to me because there was, I, I saw really such a high degree of government control over particularly traditional medicine education. You know, it had been a government decision to integrate traditional medicine more into the medical system of Thailand. And a lot of the reasons for that were strongly economic. They were about 
insufficient medical resources to cover the whole country. They were about really excessive use of imported pharmaceuticals. And the, the basis of the decision and the ideological kind of narrative that went with that decision reflected, you know, state policies along the way. And I suppose the moulding of the idea of what traditional medicine was very much conformed to my idea of, of what governmentality is about. You know, the, the idea of traditional medicine was quite changed by the government in, in the way that it set up courses, in the way that it controlled curriculum, in the way that it mandated certain use of certain textbooks. Mm. And it seemed to me that that understanding of how, how the state could pattern people's understanding of its institutions and also their understanding of, of what was expertise, I thought was, you know, a real contribution for Foucault's. And I liked that way of looking at how things had emerged, if you like. You know, I've, I've always been interested in that whole idea of how expertise is created and, and what counts as expertise. And I think Foucault says a lot about the modern institutions of, of the state and how they contribute to what is known as expertise. And I think in Thailand, the state has contributed very greatly to that. And, you know, it's not entirely uncontested, but I think the state has wanted to pattern itself in a particular kind of way and has really made a very deep impact on the forms of modernity in Thailand. I think quite a lot of the, the thinking about knowledge creation and how knowledge is created that comes from Foucault I find very compelling. He has a, you know, that big picture historical understanding of how things shift and change and, and you know, his his use of the idea of the clinic and the, the conceptual framework of, of the clinic I found to be quite a, a helpful thing in my thinking about Thailand because it was so obvious that things had shifted from a very empirical understanding of medicine and of people and of treatment to a very clinical understanding of where traditional medicine could be used and that was that was very much imposed and you know when I would see rural Thai people sitting in a very big modern western hospital or for that matter folk healers working in a big modern western hospital you could see the the discomforts the tensions of that um, it wasn't it wasn't necessarily a really good fit and and you know of course folk healers would tell you about that it's like well you know we're not that happy wearing white coats you know we like to be a bit less informal yeah well you know we don't necessarily come into work on a regular basis and, and that was their habit of practice that was how they preferred to work or that was you know how they had work so the the translation of that into a regular working life and a uniform that went with working in a hospital and regular hours was not without problems. I think it's fair to say that we are reaching an end to this podcast. Is that something you would like to round up with? Oh, we've done quite well then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll talk just a little bit about the context of modernising traditional medicine in yeah. different countries. Yeah. One of the things that I looked at in terms of understanding how traditional medicine had been integrated into the Thai health system was to look at how other traditional medicines had been incorporated into medical systems, particularly in Southeast Asia. And, you know, the patterns are really quite different. And certainly in India, with its many different traditional medicine systems, the, you know, kind of the association of traditional medicine with nationalism and the kind of professionalisation of traditional medicine started much earlier and has had considerable government backing as well, but shows a rather different form to Thailand, if you like. And again, you know, China, which was one of the models that Thailand used for 
its integration of traditional medicine again, not that they've taken it up in, in any structured way, that they haven't taken on how, how Chinese medicine's been modernised. They have, however, looked at the fact that many Chinese medicines have actually been commercialised and turned into pharmaceuticals and that you know, China now has a very large export industry based on traditional medicines. That has been a bit of a, a shining goal for Thailand. They would like to have a, a very going commercial herbal medicine manufacturing capacity. And, and I think it's something that has eluded them to date, but they have seen both India and China as being very good examples of where they would like to go. But, you know, the I suppose the, the key theme themes that appear, you know, in terms of the modernisation and professionalisation of all of traditional medicine systems in Tibet, in China, in India, Korea, is that all of them have gone through a period of being considered old-fashioned, being considered to be superstitious, of separating out from religion and, and ritual and being gradually modernised in a variety of different kinds of ways. And the process of modernisation usually takes the form of introducing a scientific rationale for, for treatment, moving away from many of the ritual practices that might have been associated with traditional medicine in the past. And usually a formal education becomes part of the, the training of traditional medicine practitioners. So they're kind of key patterns in, in all the, the uh, Asian traditional medicine system. Alan's been part of that. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Surprising how much mm -hmm. comes back when you're asked. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Anthro Talking. You can find more of our podcasts at socan.su.se. Follow us on Twitter at Anthro Talking or email us at anthrotalking at gmail.com.